Uh, this week on the Irish NFL show, we are delighted to welcome back uh, someone that's been in the show before, I think uh, during the off-season last year and also during the season, senior writer of uh, uh, of the NFL at The Athletic and also a president of the Pro Football Writers, Lindsay Jones. Lindsay, it's a pleasure to have you back on again. Uh, a very, very warm welcome back to the Irish NFL show. Well, thank you guys for having me. It's good to see you guys again. I got to see a couple of you guys in person. Um at the Super Bowl, which was awesome. Callum, I think we ran into each other like a hundred times. We did. I, I didn't get to get covered in confetti at the end of it though, Lindsay. That was, that was you. Yeah, we made our way down to the field at the very, you know, late, late, late night, you know, well after we had filed and we're waiting to kind of get back on a shuttle bus to leave and got to go play in the confetti a little bit, which that, you know, if you don't have the all access pass, you gotta wait until the very end when they're no longer uh, enforcing any sort of security rules. And that happened at like, I don't know, 11 p.m. or something like that. Did, did, you, did you do the the confetti angels? I think Ryan Harris and Emmanuel Sanders did those after Super Bowl uh, 50. <laughs> I, don't I don't think I did any angels. I think I just did the like Instagram boomerang, you know, throw, it, throw the confetti uh, in the air. Well, I was just happy I was done filing. So. Oh well, yeah, and, and and enjoying the the moment. But it has been, um, you know, a crazy uh, off season, and I, and I suppose there are any number of things we could talk about. But today's story around Brian Flores and, um, you know, the the additional uh, two people added to the lawsuit, and now I suppose the potentially the extra evidence in terms of the. Uh, memo that uh, he uh, put together. Uh, just your your reaction to to today's developments. Yeah, I mean, we were kind of waiting for this over the last week or so. Um, there was a, a filing deadline for an amended complaint of, I believe it was Sunday, it's going to be on April 10th. So we didn't figure they would be filing anything over the weekend. So we were kind of waiting for it here at the end of the week. And the expectation was, is that um, there were going to be additional coaches who were joining because when Brian Flores initially filed this lawsuit, um, they set it up that it could be a class action lawsuit. Obviously, it wasn't going to be while well, it was just one plaintiff, but we were waiting. So the idea was they were confident that there were going to be others, that um, Brian Flores believes that his experiences, while there are some you know, specific things that he says he went through, um, a lot of what he went through, he believes were kind of universal experiences for black coaches, particularly um, black coaches who were in consideration or had been head coaches. Um, so it was kind of just a matter of time of waiting, like who else would come forward? Because it does take a lot of courage to kind of come out publicly and put your name on something like this and potentially endanger your future job prospects. Um, and so now ultimately two other coaches have joined the lawsuit. Um, Steve Wilkes, who was previously the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals Cardinals for one season in 2018. He was fired after that, that single season when the Cardinals went three and 13. Um, he is currently um, a defensive coach with the Carolina Panthers. So he is still employed in the NFL, um, he actually just took that job this year. Last year, he was the defensive coordinator at the University of Missouri. Um, and then the other coach is Ray Horton, who is a longtime defensive assistant. Um, and he was he joined the suit because of what he, um, the, the, the claims are that he basically went through to use Brian Flores and his lawyer's terms, a sham interview with the Tennessee Titans in 2016 uh, when they were going through a head coaching search um, and a lot of that largely came because Mike Malarkey, who was the man who ended up getting that job, um, a couple of years ago on a podcast, he 
a podcast that was um, kind of a fan podcast. It wasn't like very widely distributed or anything, but he was very open and candid and opened up about kind of some of what he had, you know, his coaching career. And but he was asked if he had any regrets. And he said that, um, you know, the, the main regret that he could think of was that in 2016, he was told during the hiring process that he was going to be the head coach of the Tennessee Titans and that the interview process was merely a formality. Um, and he was told that before the Titans interviewed any of their diverse candidates, Ray Horton and Terrell Austin, both interviewed for that job. Um, so that was pretty compelling information to me because, you know, Mike Malarkey didn't ask to be part of any of this. This was two years ago or about a year and a half ago that he gave this interview, really had no reason to go out and lie about anything like this. It wasn't part of discovery. This wasn't under subpoena. This is just, you know, him kind of getting something off of his chest that clearly had been bothering him. I think there were a lot of people who in 2020 probably went through some reckoning about their own privilege. Um, and, you know, it was something that he kind of said in a really candid moment. And he has since stood by it. He hasn't further elaborated. Um, he did issue a statement to ESPN today that said, like, I think you have everything you need. You have my truth. And that's, I don't, I don't really have anything else to say about it. So that was kind of the big, you know, the, that was one big takeaway is that there are now more people here. And if the ultimate goal for Brian Flores and now the, these other coaches is to kind of uh, pull the curtain back on the systemic issues of racism that are really baked into the NFL and specifically it's hiring practices, the more people you have attaching their names to it, the better, because what we already saw over the past two months with, with Flores is that, you know, the league and the other teams and a lot of people will try to poke holes in individual pieces of why this this part can't be right. You know, and we've heard it with the Broncos, you know, he brought the Broncos into it, right, where, you know, the Broncos are one of the teams that are named in the, in the suit because of um, their interview process back in, I believe it was the 20. 19 was the 2018 or 2019 process, um, the one that ultimately ended up with the Broncos hiring Vic Fangio, um, you, you know, and the Broncos could say, well, that was untrue. We started our meeting at 745. He said we were late. We have documentation. So when you can poke holes at individual things that, you know, makes it a little easier to discount like the overall allegations, the overall claims, the more people that come in and say, these are our universal experiences. This is what we're all talking about. What we're all living, um, you know, that it, it just, they just keep adding up. Um, and then obviously you you alluded to the one other kind of notable piece in there was that Brian Flores is not backing down from the uh, the tanking allegations that he made against Stephen Ross. Um, and he said that he uh, issued a memo to senior staff, general manager, the, C, uh, the CFO, um, and other kind of senior front office people in December of 2019 after this happened, detailing some things about toxic workplace environment, those sorts of things. This isn't what we've learned since in the last few hours is that the Dolphins weren't caught off guard about this. The Dolphins know about that memo, believe the Dolphins have actually turned over that memo to NFL investigators. So the Dolphins don't seem to believe it's this smoking gun that it's, so we'll see. I mean, I was at league meetings last week talking to people about this investigation. The Dolphins feel fairly, fairly confident that Stephen Ross is gonna be exonerated from this and there's not, but the longer that Brian Flores keeps it alive, um, you know, the more troubling it could be for, for Miami and, and all of these other teams. Lindsay, another controversial one of late has been the Deshaun Watson trade. And whilst a lot of anger has been directed at the Browns, obviously, because they're the ones who've concluded the deal, for a large part, the Falcons, the Saints and the Panthers, you know, very early on, were all very open to potentially doing the deal. Were you surprised by the openness of these teams to go after and bear in mind 
we really haven't got to the conclusion of the, the whole saga. Yeah, I mean, surprised, probably not. I mean, I'm fairly cynical when it comes to the motivations of NFL teams, especially when it comes to players of extreme talent, like Deshaun Watson is, um, particularly quarterbacks and particularly franchises like those, all four of them who are in fairly desperate situations. The Browns are probably the least desperate among them, which uh, made the situation kind of interesting. You know, they at least had a quarterback under contract and now they're in a real weird situation where they owe uh, Baker Mayfield $18 million or whatever, and there's no trade market for him. So they're kind of in their own mess, but they made that bed. Um, you know, I've been pretty clear on record about how I feel about um, the decision that the Browns made and these other teams. But yeah, this strictly isn't the Browns operating in a vacuum here. And, you know, one of the things that we kind of came out of the league meetings last year or last week, excuse me, is that, you know, these other teams are trying to distance themselves, the Falcons in particular or you know, he came to us, we just did a Zoom meeting, it wasn't that serious of an investigation, you know, the Panthers, the team who was in on him first, they probably spent the longest time pursuing Deshaun Watson, like dating back really to last year when they were kind of starting to do their, I want to, you know, they use the word homework, I will use that term fairly loosely. Um, you know, now they're trying to say like, oh, well, we can't talk about a, a player who's under contract elsewhere. Well, you know what, you can talk about your own, you, you should have to talk about your own interactions, but David Tepper has been um, notably absent and quiet. He hasn't been, you know, really owning up to any of this, but all of those teams, the fact that um, there were four teams actively pursuing, pursuing Deshaun Watson um, made this a bidding war. I mean, they, they, they enabled this situation to happen where Deshaun Watson got, a record amount of guaranteed money, $230 million, the way the contract was structured. And, you know, he really was able to choose his future. You know, it was kind of a choose your own adventure book. And Deshaun Watson went ahead and picked probably the best team that was looking for him and also the most money. And, you know, if you consider everything that he's still facing, the nature of the allegations, um, yes, he's not going to be facing criminal charges and it's, you know, extremely unlikely, if completely impossible, that he'd ultimately end up going to jail about this. He still could be found um, civilly liable for this, having to pay a lot of money, having or potentially having to settle these suits, having to fly back and forth to Houston for trials. Um, it's still really messy and really ugly. And um, other owners and GMs are really angry about the contract. <laughs> Not so much about the moral, what it said about their morals, but um, it's ugly. And the, the contract is yeah. a game changer. It is. Yeah. I mean, you know, some of the owners that we've heard from, you know, Steve Viscotti and uh, some of these guys are the, the ones who are going to have to hand out future quarterback contracts, right? Because it's complete, completely changed the structure here. And, um, you know, we keep, we always talk about, right? Like when is the NFL going to get guaranteed contracts? It's something that players talk all about, you know, back in 2020 when they were negotiating a new CBA, like, could they get some sort of guaranteed contact contract structure? And, they're never going to get that in the CBA, but really all it takes is kind of a game changing player contract. And now it will be, we have to see if this will be an outlier or if the next group of top tier quarterbacks will be able to get the same sort of guarantees that Deshaun Watson got. Uh, Lindsay, we said, we said it a bit actually when Kirk Cousins got his deal and Viking, with the Vikings multi-year deal, which was fully guaranteed. So yeah, it's definitely the way that yeah. we're flowing at some point. Yeah. I mean, the guys who came after Kirk didn't end up getting it for getting, getting guaranteed deals for, you know, whatever reason, I think, you know, it's still extremely hard to do. There's yeah, 
have to, they have to basically put the money in escrow. Mm -hmm. So that for the Browns, it was like $184 million that they had to pay out like last week. And, you know, Deshaun's not getting that money tomorrow, but uh, it's they're having to pay it. So for a lot of teams, you know, like Jerry Jones can put $184 million in, in escrow. Can the Bengals? You know, some of these teams that might not be as cash rich as, as other teams, the ones that are more like family business, you know. We can prices. use the word cheap as well. You can, we can use the word cheap. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I'll let you editorialize it. Um, just generally, Lindsay, you started talking about something called an Instagram boomerang, and I must admit, I don't even understand what those words mean. Um, but there are many, many things during free agency, I, I would admit, I did not understand. I mean, <laughs> Uh, what the commanders do, were doing in terms of Carson yeah. Wentz generally and giving up picks for it, why the Falcons had to do Matt Ryan so dirty along the way, what the Broncos are thinking about Randy Gregory uh, is another one up there. But Christian Kirk and the contract that he got from the Jaguars is probably right at the top of that list. Yeah. But we've also then just seen... You know, now Stefan Diggs as uh, this week, obviously, as long as we take some hill and Devontae Adams, that wide receiver, the prima donna market going up through the roof. Now, that still doesn't justify that Kirk contract, don't get me wrong. But what hasn't made sense to you during free agency? And look, we know the TV money's gone up, but has that wide receiver market really just blown out of all proportions, kind of with other owners now going to have to follow suit to keep their superstars happy? Yeah, the, the calculus when it comes to the wide receiver market is really interesting because, you know, so two years ago, we had the Deshaun Watson trade and then the new contract. Um, the trade compensation wasn't crazy for De DeAndre Hopkins. Um, and that's actually, you know, one of those mind blowing things that like they didn't get a first round pick for DeAndre Hopkins. And it's probably one of the reasons, I mean, of many reasons that Bill O'Brien ended up getting fired. Um, but the, you know, the, the Cardinals ended up giving him like a very top of the market deal to the point where it seemed like at least for you know to the, the 2020 offseason and the 2021 offseason um that that would be an outlier deal that like if wide receivers out there you weren't going to get up to that hopkins market and yes they were those were weird off seasons because of COVID and everything but you know all of a sudden now like that's the standard and it's trading picks and then also having to pay the top of the market contract but the, the other side of it to me that's really interesting is that the guys coming out of college um, are a lot better. And, you know, I don't want to take anything away from Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson and some of these guys who have been incredibly, like, I, I think those guys are really, really special and are going to be special players for a long time. But it used to be like almost impossible to find one of those guys who'd be able to come in and be not just like a rookie of the year candidate, but like a legit pro bowler slash all pro player as a rookie. And now that's becoming a little bit more commonplace. You know, I, I still think those guys are very rare special talents, um, but you see team, you see some teams that are saying we have to pay top of the market. We have to give up draft assets, you know, first round picks, second round picks, and then pay a hundred million dollars to get a Devonte Adams where other teams are saying, I think we can get value. I think we can get better value. Devonte Adams is really great, but if he's not going to play for us, if he doesn't want to play under the franchise tag and we are up against the cap, we're going to roll the dice that we're going to be able to find a player who might be 80% the player that Devonte Adams was for, you know, 25% the, the, the cost or whatever, whatever it might be. Uh, the Tyree kill situation is interesting to me though, because that, um, you know, that was a lot of picks, five picks for Tyreek Hill, plus the contract. Um, 
for a guy who, I mean, he stayed out of trouble for the last couple of years, um, to his, to his credit, I guess, but it feels risky. It feels risky to me. That, that, that was very neatly done. <laughs> very neatly done. It was kind Man. of just, a, it was, it was a rough week with the Deshaun Watson and then Tyreek Hill coming kind of like boom, boom, back to back and saying, it's just reinforcing what we know, right? Is that NFL teams will pay a premium for talent and overlook a lot of, uh, a lot of red flags. Yeah, but but don't worry, Lindsay. In October, the the NFL will have um, pink everywhere, and yeah, it'd be uh, fine. Yeah, it'd be it'd be an absolute uh, you know uh, honor. Well, and they painted racism in the end zones, so the Brian Flores lawsuit will surely be settled. It's fine. You know, they've they've solved all these problems. <laughs> One thing that I've been, and I know not, not just the, the people in this show, Lindsay, but people in Europe have been very thankful for over the last few weeks is uh, the times that these deals have happened. Devontae Adams happening at 11.25pm. Yeah. Tom Brady deciding to come back at about 11.20pm. Uh, Tyreek Hill happening at 3pm. I think we were at 4pm. We were literally recording when it happened, not live. Uh, it's been great. And one thing that you know just had to not happen, we were all in bed, was the whole situation in Tampa Bay. Bruce Arians going upstairs and Todd Bowles taking over uh, as the head coach down in Tampa. Uh, obviously, Lindsay working with The Athletic, really, really great piece last week on Bruce Arians and, and the opportunities that he has gave for, for so many people and obviously women as well in, in the league. Um, could you maybe talk to us just a wee bit more on that? Because it, it was a great read just whenever I read it just uh, two or three days ago. Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, we talk so much about like, the Rooney rule and diversity and why diversity matters. And Bruce Arians lived it. You know, I think so much of what these policies that they try to put in place, the league is working on and, you know, the Rooney rule and, you know, mandating that you hire an assistant, uh, a minority assistant coach who will be on the offense and those sorts of things. Um, You know, that's, that's fine in name or whatever, but if you're not intentional, and wanting to do it and be and committed to not just checking a box to hire somebody so that because the league says that you have to, but if you're intentional for, I want to hire the best people, but with an eye of diversity, because I believe that diversity is important. I believe that my staff is better when we have, you know, coaches of all different ages, coaches of all different uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds, when we have gender diversity, um, when you truly believe that and are intentional about it, um, it you, you can see you can see it work and you can make the argument that you're better and that you can win because you do that. And, you know, Arians never did it to like, look, I, he's got a lot of ego and I know that he likes, you know, when Billie Jean King showed up to, to a game in Tampa and he got you know, praise and stuff for this, but like he wasn't doing it so that he could meet Billie Jean King, right? Like he wasn't doing it so people could call him a champion for women. He was doing it because he thought it made his football team better. And he believed that there were um, a lot of coaches who were getting overlooked and he was overlooked for a really long time. Um, He didn't get his first head coaching job until he was 60 years old. And he had a very clear idea of when I become a head coach, this is what I'm going to do with my staff. And I'm going to make sure there are spots on my staff for people who have been underrepresented or have been overlooked. And that was very much um, geared toward black men and towards women. And I actually, when I was at USA Today in 2015, I was out at Cardinals camp um, the summer when Jen Welter was an intern there. And they had they had kind of rejected a lot of the interview requests for her. Like they'd kind of announced in the summer that she was going to be coming on. Um, 
but they hadn't been like allowing her to do any interviews. They wanted to keep it pretty, pretty low key. Um, but they let, they granted mine and they let me interview her. So I was like the first one who got to like talk to her. And I, you know, I talked to a bunch of guys in the locker room about, you know, what it's like playing for a woman because I, in 2015, it was new. There had not been a, a woman who had coached in the NFL before. And so of course, when Arians decided to retire and I, I it's just the landscape has changed so dramatically for women in the NFL uh, for in coaching in front office jobs since 2015, which really was not that long ago, right? I mean, this is, we're not even a decade removed from this and wanted to just reflect back on a little bit of, you know, how, how Bruce really opened those doors. And I think I wrote this in the piece that kind of, I remember at the time it felt like it was just like, just creaking the door open just a little bit, right? Just like, you know, maybe being able to peek inside, but really what it did was like, it kicked that door open and it was a wave of women who have followed. There's five full-time uh, female coaches in the NFL right now. There have been more than that. It kind of goes in, in waves, but there are a lot of women working in front office and scouting. Um, I don't think we're very far away from having a, a female general manager in the NFL. That's coming, female team presidents, those sorts of things. And that's not something that I ever thought was possible certainly not 10 years ago and probably not even, you know, seven or eight years ago when I, when I met Jen Walter for the first time. So, um, you know, he was intentional about his staff. He was intentional about the succession plan in place there. You know, he, he very much believed that Todd Bowles deserved a second chance to be a head coach. Um, he very much believes that, that Byron Lefwich is going to get a job and deserves a chance. And that's why he has, kind of made Byron Lefwich the play caller over the last two seasons. And now this is really going to be Byron's offense. There's going to be no question who is running that show, who is working with Tom Brady on everything. Um, so hopefully in six months or so, we'll be talking, or I guess it'll be more than six months, nine months or so, we'll be talking about Byron Lefwich getting a job to be a, a head coach in the NFL. Yeah, certainly will be interesting to see how, uh, how things shake out in Tampa. Well, I suppose, Lindsay, one of the other um, stories uh, from this offseason, if um, if Howie was as good at drafting as he is at acquiring draft picks, how many Super Bowls would the Eagles have? <laughs> well, he did draft Carson Wentz with one of those draft picks. So maybe I guess that's probably why he, he hasn't drafted hasn't won more. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he seems to be really good at like fleecing other teams because it seems so clear that they won that trade this week to the point that I was like, when it first came through, I was like, did that just happen? Like one, it was a lot of picks and a lot of math and figuring out, okay, well, who's moving where, but it was like the value that they were getting from the saints was great. And the saints haven't necessarily been great in terms of value. They've been good at drafting. They've hit on a lot of draft picks in, in recent years, which has kind of helped keep them afloat and in the mix while they're in salary cap hell. Um, but they haven't been known to get great value for the way that they move around the draft board. Um, but yeah, that that was an interesting move. And it, it's clearly one that's looking, uh, looking towards the future and knowing that what this draft class looks like, looking at having a really good understanding, think of your current roster, and that, you know, I'm sure they're looking at their current roster right now, if you're talking about the Eagles, and saying there's nobody, there's no quarterbacks specifically in this draft class that are going to be any better than Jalen Hurts. We owe it to Jalen to give him another shot to do one more year. And then we're, we've positioned ourselves next year that we're going to know if Jalen's our guy or not. Um, and they're one of several teams that's going to be in really good position to uh, make a major quarterback move in the 2023 offseason. And it's just really fun. We're now going on like, we'll be on what, three or four straight years of just ridiculous quarterback <laughs> movement and quarterback speculation. 
um, which is really, really fun. So this year has been weird in ways that I don't think any of us could have predicted a couple of months ago. And then next year, I think between the draft class and then more veteran movement, because that always happens, uh, will be really fun as well. And do you, for the, the Saints, do you think it's that there's the two turns of thought, I suppose, some that they're going to go up and, and move up again and look to, to get a quarterback, others that maybe they've looked around uh, the NFC and said, um, there's not a whole lot here, and especially with BA moving on, and they look at what they did to the Bucks last year, and they said, if we can get a couple of guys in here, maybe we can really make a run at this uh, in, in this conference. Yeah, I mean, look, well, there's a little bit of a wild card with Jameis Winston because he's coming off of that ACL injury. So when exactly is he going to be ready? But like, I think you can win with Jameis Winston. I don't know if you can win a Super Bowl with Jameis Winston, but like you can be competitive in the NFC South and maybe for a wild card spot. I think the Bucks are very clearly the favorite in that division, but like you can get by with Jameis Winston. The thing that I just don't understand, like, you don't move up like that. You don't trade a first round pick to move up for anybody but a quarterback. It's an insanely bad business decision, especially when you're moving up into the teens. There is no certainty about what that draft board is going to look like in the mid-teens. So unless you are 100% confident that like Malik Willis is going to fall to 15, is, did they move to 15? Is that where they're at now? But like, if you're moving up, feeling confident that like the offensive tackle that you want is going to be there or that like you're really happy with any four different offensive tackles. It just doesn't seem like great value. Like you shouldn't be giving up future first round picks to move up for anybody who isn't a quarterback. And then flip side of that, or the, I guess the other question there is that like with these quarterbacks, was it worth moving up um, to get a quarterback who in most years, or if the if any of these guys were in like last year's class, or maybe even next year's class, would any of these guys have a first round grade? Are they just getting artificially bumped up because of what this class looks like? So I don't know. I don't love it for the Saints, um, but I guess we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what they do on draft night. But I, I think I have a hard time seeing what they're going to do that would make me change my opinion on that uh, on that trade. Not the first time either. A few years ago, they moved up and everybody assumed they were taking Lamar Jackson and they took Marcus Davenport. Marcus so, Davenport. And yeah. I, I like Marcus Davenport. I like went down to San Antonio and did a feature on him. I think he's really interesting. He like looks uh, like his physical, physically he profiles like almost exactly like DeMarcus Ware. Um, like I really like him, but like, yeah, you don't, you don't move up for Marcus Davenport. Like as no. much as you might like him and he's going to be like a, he's probably going to have a long productive career. You don't move up for that guy and another set of fans who are a bit kind of confused at the moment and i spoke to a few of them as seahawks fans uh, they're getting mixed signals they don't know mm. if it's a if it's a full rebuild or if they're kind of middle of the road because whilst they did the russell wilson deal you know then they kind of commit to saying we're going to try to get dk metcalf signed up for a contract but yet this week there's a lot of talk that they've said to the jets we don't want your 10 but if you give us four we'll make the trade so Again, it's just mixed signals come from the GM. Are you going to rebuild or where are you going to go from here? Yeah, it's it's really rough. You know, I when they made the trade um, for Russell and then Drew Locke being part of that trade, it was like, I hope they're not done at quarterback. Like this can't be their only move that they're going to make. You can't realistically go into next season with Drew Locke and I guess Geno Smith. Drew, they, Drew, get, Drew gets no love on this show. He. <laughs> 
Lindsay based in Colorado as well. Are you guys Drew Lock? Are you Drew Lock truthers? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Lindsay, I have me, I have my own issues. I'm a Giants fan. I have my own issues at quarterback. I don't need to be getting involved in the Drew Lock world. So yeah, it's crazy. But like, look, I get why the Jets are still calling and trying to because it's out there now that like if you want to go out and get a top receiver these guys are available. Devo Samuel is going to be in that mix. I think some teams have been calling Washington about Terry McLaurin. Washington's not interested in moving him, but kind of that next group of guys who are due for a contract. Um, but yeah, I mean, I got asked recently, I don't know if it was a radio hit or something that was like, which team had the biggest uh, upgrade and which team had the biggest downgrade this year? And I was like, it's just, it's clearly the Broncos and Seahawks just swapping quarterbacks because I mean, I, I, I like Drew Locke, like as a guy, like, I think he was in a kind of a tough situation last year, you know, I, you know, it wasn't always the best situation here for him, but like objectively as a player, when he was the full-time starter in 2020, objectively, he was one of the worst quarterbacks, if not the worst quarterback by like every statistical measure. Um, you know, he can make some nice throws. He has like some of his, you know, physical profile, profiles nice like he can scramble well he you know, can move well out of the pocket and those sorts of things but like when it comes to actually watching him try to manage an entire game and function in a full nfl offense he just hasn't shown that he can do it and yes he's had coordinator changes and he had some injuries and but like i i i have i know they're trying to sell it to that C, that seahawks fan base and i get what john schneider and pete carroll are trying to do they felt like they were kind of backed into a corner with Russell Wilson, that he wasn't going to re-sign their long-term and this was the best value they could get from him. But like trying to sell that as like, he's, he's better than he showed. He's better than he played. And like, great. If you, they're not naive. I mean, it's, 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 it's really tough. And like, I've said this about Drew Locke for a long time, even, you know, going into the 2020 season and the 2021 season here in Denver was that like, best case scenario if every single thing broke right for josh allen best case scenario for drew lock was that you could say we can turn him into josh allen look at who josh allen was as a rookie look at who josh allen was coming out of college he was inaccurate but like physically he's really gifted he's got this big arm and he's a good leader and the guys love all that stuff but like josh allen is probably a unicorn like you're probably not going to replicate what the bills did with josh allen because Josh Allen worked really hard at it. And then the Bills structurally built around him um, an offense and then a personnel around him to, to make him into a into a good quarterback. It's just really hard for a guy who's inaccurate and who has some uh, mechanical issues or you know inconsistencies with his footwork and then poor decision making, which that's Drew's probably biggest problem, right? Is his decision making and his uh, fumbling and turnovers. Um, I don't, I just don't know how fixable that is. And I don't know how fixable that is in year. Is this year four? This can be year yeah. four for him. I mean, Lindsay, they just have to fix every part of his game that's involved. But in other than that, it's fine. That's yeah. Fine. I mean, it's, right. it's fine. Yeah. I'm sure it's going to be fine. I mean, Drew Locke is actually two four letter words. And in fairness, Michael and Colin have often used four letter words when talking about Drew Locke <laughs> uh, from time to time. But and it paid I off Mark in the end. It paid off Mark in the end. It's I know, but Michael, you, you think I give the Broncos a hard time at times. So I just want to say publicly, especially with Lindsay based in Colorado as well, the Broncos have done such an amazing job at upgrading a quarterback and the moves to get in Russell Wilson are fantastic. Now, if they can just fix the other 52 spots on the roster to get out of the basement in their division, that might be good. But we'll, we'll, we'll see. Maybe not 52, maybe like 
15. No, good 30. <laughs> a good 30, Lindsay. Anyway. Well, I, I, but, I mean, they're playing. The, the thing about the wrestle before we move on to something else is like the Russell Wilson trade, like it energized the city. I mean, people were so depressed when Aaron Rodgers all of a sudden, you know, he announced and then it was what, like an hour later. But like you got Russell Wilson, but you probably still have just the third best quarterback in the division. And that's if, I mean, that's assuming that he's better than Derek Carr consistently. He wasn't necessarily better than Derek Carr at times last season. So that's a huge move, but you're in the best division of football where everybody else basically except for the Chiefs has been loading yeah. up, but the Chiefs are the one everybody's chasing. So is that one move enough to, I think it makes them a playoff contender for sure, but like, does it get you to that Super Bowl contender range, which is what, you know, what happened with the Bucks and with the Rams when they went out and made their major quarterback move? I'm, I'm sure that debate might come up on this show once or twice. <laughs> a few times, now, yeah. Now, and oh. now the season. <laughs> but I was actually, you, you were calling out, um, the, the great uh, man and the and uh, efforts that Bruce Arians has always made towards diversity and the efforts he, he's done in that regard. I always think, and I've called it out a few times in the show, that you know people overlook what the late great Al Davis did in that regard as well. When yeah. you think of Tom Flores and Art Shell, and of course the Princess of Darkness, uh, Amy Trask, yeah. CEO there of the Raiders. But it's not normal, really. Let's be honest. The owners yeah. in the NFL are called out for any commitment to diversity. One thing that is always called out is they happen to be very, very rich people. I want to do a quick pop quiz. Lindsay, you might have seen this. So I'm going to tease the other guys on this. Who is the richest owner in the NFL, guys? Oh, I did see this yesterday, so I'm going to uh, uh, abstain. So, all right. Number three it's not who you think it's. It's not who no, you no, think it's. Straight away, I was going to say number Jerry Jones. Jerry no. Jones. Number two is Stan Kroenke. And number one is David Tepper of the Carolina Panthers. Yeah. You wouldn't have said that. I know. But there was nearly the prettiest, best-looking, most attractive, most wonderful, greatest player of all time who was an owner in the NFL, if recent reports are meant to believe. Lindsay, I'm really fascinated, mainly because I want to marry him if he would ever just leave Giselle. What are your thoughts on the idea that Tom Brady allegedly was going to become a minority owner in the Dolphins. And this ties back to the whole Stephen Ross, the whole Prime Flores thing, but the minority ownership. Yeah, thing. well, there's there's a, a passage in the Brian Flores lawsuit about uh, trying to pursue an, uh, a, a veteran quarterback who is not to be named, who would have been breaking NFL rules to do so. And um, I think you could draw your connections about who that was. One Michigan man looking out for another Michigan man. Um, well, the, the Dolphins have had these like celebrity minority uh, limited partners in the past. So this is very much in line with um, what they've done in the past. Um, it would be very rare for an active player to be involved in something like that. Um, it's the way in. It's the way into like actual like primary ownership. NFL ownership is to become a limited partner. You can gain a lot of wealth. That way it, it does a lot for your portfolio. It doesn't get you a lot in like name recognition or power. You don't actually get to vote or anything like that. But it um, the way that the NFL's business is running, it will help make you a lot of money. That's how David Tepper was, was able to buy the Panthers, was that he was a limited partner in the Steelers for a long time. He got to know the NFL business. Um, and then obviously all of his other money that he had. Um, I think his like net worth right now is in like, 16 billion or something 17.9 billion I believe. yeah no, a lot yeah, yeah. Uh, only like 
17.9 billion more than mine is. So um, yeah, a, a lot of money. But we're at the point now, though, that these NFL franchises are worth so much. And the way that the NFL's ownership rules are, it's a 30%, right? That um, you can't just do these like massive ownership groups where there's like 40 people. So so you hear things that was like Kanye West and Antonio Brown want to buy, buy the Broncos. Cool. Like how many billions do you have? Like Kanye West, who I'm sure is one of the richest people in America, still doesn't have that kind of money. When you hear things of like, oh, John Elway and Peyton Manning want to buy the Broncos. They don't have that. They don't have that. John Elway has car dealerships up and down out here in Denver, not even close to having that kind of money. So the NFL is at this point right now with the valuation of these franchises that um, ownership is very exclusive. Um, there are only a handful of people that are wealthy enough to become primary owners. So the way in is to become these these limited, you know, limited partnerships. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we'll see if Tom Brady is interested in doing that at some point, you know, maybe, maybe after he retires. I'd watch very closely a guy like Patrick Mahomes um, at, at some point. I mean, not to say that he's like going to do anything right away, but he and his now wife, um, they have limited ownership in the Kansas City Royals and then also in the NWSL Women's Soccer League in Kansas City. So it's kind of this new breed of like NFL star player where he's making his money differently. He's made a ton of money by the time he was 25 and is investing it and is um, building his portfolio differently that, you know, maybe by the time he's 40 or near, at the end of his career, he might have that type of wealth and portfolio where, you know, he could have a larger stake in an NFL franchise if you wanted to. And, and Lindsay, I was just going to say, I mean, like, I mean, the, the Brady thing is just almost like the celeb power piece. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Kind of it. But I think you're right. Jimmy Haslam, if we're in the Browns, if I remember rightly, that's, he started as a limited owner in, in something like the Steelers as well or something. Yep. I think it was, yeah, I think it was the Steelers. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's something that I, that I heard last week at the owners meetings is, you know, we're doing a lot of asking around about what's going on with the Broncos ownership and who's going to be in that. And one of those, somebody was like, look at all the limited owners with other teams and try to figure out like that might be, that might be a clue to you is who is mm -hmm. bidding. I mean, cause there's at least 10 groups that are putting together bids right now and they're, they're making their way through that. But um, the people who have a legit, have like a more realistic shot of actually getting in, um, if they're already a limited partner with another team, that's. And, and Lindsay, full circle as well. Jerry Richardson was the last active player to be an owner and obviously passed over the yeah. franchise in less than salubrious circumstances. But now <laughs> we come back to David Tepper having more money than the five of us put together times several. But it wasn't wasn't enough money to get himself to Sean Watson, though. Wasn't wow. enough. Um, and yeah. just just finally, Lindsay, and it's for me here. Uh, look, I have to ask you at the owners' meetings last week. Um, one team very openly talked about looking to play in London. Do, do you think that's a done deal or have you heard anything about international games this year? Not to focus oh. on one team, but have you any sort of ideas about that or is that all? Yeah, just... who was who was it who was talking? Sorry. Uh, jo Joe Ellis was quite vocal about it. I, I oh, was yeah, 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 yeah. Well, because so they've kind of been in that mix. So I think they were supposed to be there right in 2020. They were supposed to play the Falcons. Like the Falcons were committed to an international game. Yeah, I mean, I think the Broncos are open um, to doing it. We should be getting, we should be hearing soon. Hmm who those international matchups are going to be. I think we know more about who the Mexico games are going to be. I think at this point, um, I know our Saints reporter has been hearing that the Saints are likely going to be playing one of the London games. Um, Against the Bengals, apparently, which could be 
massive. If that if that does happen, it's obviously not confirmed, but there's been big rumors over here about that. So yeah, so he's, so he's doing all the like connecting of the dots of like okay, which teams want to go, who's playing who, who's scheduled to play who. Um, you know, they like those cross conference games, but they will do anything. They'll do any sort of matchups. They'll do divisional games. Um, yeah, I just hope you guys get some good matches. It's been it's been too, we keep sending you the worst games, and I, I feel terrible. There have been 31, I think, London games. There has never been a London game between two teams with winning oh, records. Ever. Well, Ever. sometimes they look like when they first, when the schedule first comes out, you're, you can talk yourself into it. Like, oh, it's Trevor Lawrence versus Zach Wilson, like the first and second pick of the draft. And then you're like, oh, my God, this is the worst game I've ever seen. Um, and it's God bless you. Just... The, the, like in, in April, you don't really know who's going to be having a great season come October. It's difficult. Yeah. I mean, we know you're going to get the Jags, right? Like the Jags are always going to be there and hopefully they won't be as much of a disaster and an embarrassment to the sport and the leagues uh, as they were last year. So hopefully for Trevor Lawrence's sake, we, we have things the will be going we better. Have, we have the Packers this year. So. Oh, well, yeah. That'll be, yeah. Hopefully yeah, Aaron Rodgers won't be doing something weird. Oh, he, pro he probably will. But I, I think if it if the, if the Saints... Um, stop their fans from having Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase having a homecoming in Louisiana. I think that's going to be a news story. I think um, yeah. watch the, the Superdome might need protection because I would be, if I was a Louisiana resident, I would be yeah. very annoyed if the league did that. But Lindsay, you've been so generous with your time. We always enjoy having you on. Um, it's all, we always cover such a, a diverse range of topics. So thank you again. And to our, our viewers, you can check Lindsay out by Lindsay uh, Jones on Twitter and also, of course, at The Athletic. Great stuff over there. So thanks, Lindsay. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys for having me.